My name's David, and I'm part of the team that helped to lead this uh, community. It's a great privilege to be speaking to you this morning. Um, we're beginning a new series today. I'm going to get into that. But um, first, before we do that, I'd like to take some time to do a gospel reading. And so I've asked Karis uh, Wiley if she would come and read today's gospel reading for us. Karis. The reading is from Mark chapter 8 verses 31 to chapter 9, verse 1, in the New King James Version. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Great, thank you, Karis, so much. Thank you for that reading. Wonderful. Wow. So, um, we're a Jesus community, and uh, if you've been tracking with what we've been singing this morning, I think it's been apparent, and what we've been praying this morning, I think it's been apparent, and what we've been talking about so far this morning, I think it's been apparent, and if you've read anything on the way in, you'll see that we are a community seeking to live the way of of Jesus and to work for the peace and common good of our city. Um, We're beginning a a new series today, as I said, um, from Lent through to Easter, entitled Encountering Jesus. And the goal of this series is really for us to discover or hopefully rediscover, that's certainly my prayer, to rediscover the, the real Jesus in the Gospels. The problem I think we have, particularly as Christians in the West, um, the West that has been so shaped by Judeo-Christian values and also is haunted by the ghost of Christendom, is that um, the Christian story has been retold over and over, appropriated over and over, misused, interpreted and applied to so many different agendas that really it can become difficult to see or hear the real Jesus. We have a version that has been so overlaid with all different kinds of meaning 
that we miss perhaps the Jesus that we find when we read the Gospels. And so the idea of Jesus becoming so lost in translation and so skewed has skewed really how we see him or what he has to say to us. In a collection of uh, essays by the Indian-born writer Salomon Salomon Rushdie um, entitled Step Across the Line, uh, there's an essay of his on the Taj Mahal, um, and he writes this. The problem with the, the Taj Mahal, says Salomon Rushdie, is that it has become so overlaid with accumulated meanings as to be almost impossible to see. When you arrive at the outer walls of the gardens in which the Taj is set, it's as if every hustler and hawker in Agra is waiting for you to make the familiarity breeds contempt problem, peddling imitation mahals of every size and price, making that problem worse. It leads to a certain amount of shoulder-shrugging disenchantment. Recently, a British friend who was about to make his first visit to India told me that he'd decided to leave the Taj off of his itinerary because of its overexposure. If I urged him not, uh, if I urged him not to, it's because of my own vivid memory in pushing my way for the first time through the jostling crowd of imitation vendors past all the myriad hawkers of meaning and interpretation and into the presence of the very thing itself, which utterly overwhelmed me and made all my notions of it and it's uh, about it devaluation feel totally and completely redundant. The building itself left my skepticism in shreds, announcing itself as itself, insisting with absolute force on its sovereign authority, it completely obliterated the million, million counterfeits of it, glowingly filled once and forever, the place in the mind previously occupied by its malacra. This essay on the Taj Mahal, I think, is a perfect illustration of, of what we might have done to Jesus over time. Uh, the question we need to ask is, have we sometimes, or are we tending to sometimes tame or domesticate or dilute Jesus into a completely different Jesus than the real person of Christ. We end up missing the utterly captivating, radical, and compelling Jesus and his utterly captivating, radical, and compelling message, taming down his words, boxing him in, restricting his impact on our lives. We may even neutralize the effect Jesus has on our own real agendas or desires. Maybe the real Jesus is too difficult to deal with or causes too much inconvenience, and I speak that to myself. Or maybe his grace is just too scandalous. Maybe he is too much. And instead, perhaps maybe we, the collective we, have filtered him down and dialed him down so that perhaps he fits our agenda rather than the other way around. We've dialed the Jesus that wants to upend and reorganize society according to the kingdom of God. And the question, I suppose, is are we as Christians in name only or do we bear the marks of encountering Jesus? 2000 and... uh, Sorry, let me just, I'm skipping ahead. We're going to spend the next seven weeks doing just that, encountering Jesus, stories from the Gospels on the road to Easter. Um, 
And uh, we're going to begin today with that passage that Karis read wonderfully. I was about to say 2016 was one of the worst years of my life, I would say. So many things that I had built or thought I was building and striving for, relationships or ministry, success or job or a whole bunch of stuff that I don't need to go into now, it just began to tumble down. It began to tumble to the ground, leaving pain, uh, despair, and I think the hardest of all, disappointment. And the hardest of all, perhaps, disappointment in God. And I cried out in my prayers, and I got really angry with God, and I also discovered that He could take it. And then I discovered that these prayers were more honest and perhaps even more holy than the prayers that I maybe prayed before. That these prayers mirrored the Psalms and the Psalm writers' cries in the scriptures. You see, my expectations of God, who God was, particularly who God was for me, who God was for me in my life, what he was going to do in my life, what he was going to deliver on to me, achieve through me, all these expectations I find were shattered. I wonder if you've had an experience or experiences like that where you've been working and building and striving and hustling and, and then suddenly just something just cleans you out. I'd never have verbalized it that way, that I was a coming to God, obedient, hoping that he would bless what I'm doing, making it better, whatever. I wouldn't have verbalized that, but it was the kernel of the operating system of my faith that was actually at work. It was the operative part of me that was unverbalized, but nevertheless completely in control. And so when everything came tumbling down, so did my faith with it. And at the game of life, I felt like I had lost and that I was lost. And then I came through that immediate pain and processing. And just like the disciples in this passage that Karis has just read, I realized that I had a lot to learn, or that I had a lot to relearn. I just want you to look at that scripture. Maybe Mark can put it up on the screen in verse 31. It says, he began to teach them. He began to teach them. Verse 31. One slide before. There we go. And he began to teach them. And that, that phrase struck me. It's interesting because the disciples had been traveling with Jesus. They had given up their lives. They had dropped their fishing nets and they had been following Jesus. In the previous verses, in fact, Jesus had asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter had replied, you're the Christ. And so they see Jesus as their Messiah and they have been with him on his mission. But they have not, they clearly have things to learn. And it's a verse later that Jesus begins to teach them these things that were so so fundamental to the mission that Jesus was, was on. So they were with him, but yet there was so much more to learn. Isn't that true of our story? That there is always, always, always more to learn, to relearn, to discover, and to experience. I want to speak that over you today. There is more. There is more for you in this life. 
If you think you have reached the end of your enlightenment, if you've got this Jesus thing figured out, the Christian thing figured out, if the level of your experience and the ceiling of that is set, I think Jesus wants to shatter that and say, there is more. And so what does Jesus begin to teach his disciples in uh, this passage? Well, let's just remember, firstly, what Peter and the other disciples were really saying in the previous exchange when they confessed You are the Lord. To these Jewish followers, Peter uh, and and the other disciples, um, Jesus was the Messiah, which to them meant that he'd come to become king. He had come to overthrow the enemy, the Romans, and to establish God's reign and rule once again in Israel. He, I mean, they had some expectations about Jesus, right? They had some expectations about what Jesus was going to, do to them. And they've been following him, as I've said. It's not like they've just rocked up. They've been with him for a period of time now. They've given up everything. And they've witnessed in the first eight, seven chapters of Mark, if you read that, they've witnessed the power of his ministry. They've witnessed the healings, the casting out of demons. They've witnessed him forgiving people from their sins. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, they thought, was where Jesus was going to take his rightful place as king of the Jews. And there was a lot of lacquer being built up upon this image of Jesus. A lot of assumptions, a lot of meanings, a lot of projection of what they thought was the real Jesus. And so when Jesus starts to teach them, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer many things and be rejected. And when the disciples heard this, Well, it didn't quite meet those expectations that they had. It just didn't meet those expectations. That Jesus would would die, that he would suffer, that he would be rejected and he would he would die. They were they were horrified. I mean, Jesus' friends and followers, they were they were used to danger. It was a perilous time. They were growing up in Galilee. They'd heard about revolutions before. They knew about holy men, holy people who uh, would act, who would proclaim that they were going to do many things, and they would actually end up crucified. Any new leader, any prophet, any teacher with something fresh to say might end up that way. So they knew that they were following Jesus. When they were following Jesus, they were taking risks. It was, it was dangerous. They knew that. That was, that was a given. And they knew that so much as all, they had to look, uh, all, all that they had to look at was, the, was what happened to John the Baptist. He was, he was murdered. He was, he was killed. So it was right there for them. They knew that this was going to be dangerous, risky to follow this rabbi, Jesus. But the revelation, this revelation from, from Jesus, that he began to teach them that he was going to suffer, he was going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, the, the, the people that, that were at the top of the hierarchy in terms of their tradition, the fellow Jews that were going to they were also going to reject Jesus as the Messiah, and then he was going to die. He was going to be put to death. And, uh, I mean, this revelation from Jesus was different to all those other ones that we talked about before. This was different. This was something very new that Jesus, that this was going to happen, that Jesus was speaking this way. And Peter particularly, I like Peter, Peter particularly was appalled. He was really appalled, so much so that he pulled Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. N.T. Wright says that Jesus, or N.T. Wright says that Peter scolds 
Jesus, <laughs> I just can't really quite imagine that image. Like, can you, can you just think about that? Like, you know, Peter is scolding Jesus because Jesus has said he's come to suffer, be rejected, and die. It's like the penny hasn't quite dropped yet with Peter. Peter's dead serious because Peter is, he's got his hopes on what Jesus is going to deliver, what Jesus is going to do. You can't die, Jesus. The whole point of you being Messiah is that you don't, that you win, that you defeat the enemy. If you die, it proves that you're not the Messiah. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. He turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. N.C. Wright translates this, get behind me, accuser. You're thinking human thoughts, not God thoughts. Now, let's rewind one second here, okay? If you go to the same passage in Matthew, we've been a mark back to Matthew, and the same encounter is played out. Here's what you get in the exchange where Jesus just says to Peter, who do you say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, Jesus. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies using... Peter's real name at that, at that time, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. He gives him a new name. And on this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia. That is the first sort one of the times that Jesus mentions the church. On you, Peter, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus gives Peter a new name. Because he has, his name was Simon Barjona. He's now a new name. He's the rock. He's going to build his church. And then a few verses later, get behind me, Satan. There is a complete 180 here. Except it's not a 180. Jesus loves Peter, but Jesus is up to some stuff. Jesus is up to some stuff. Peter took him aside, rebuking him and saying, far be it, Lord, this cannot happen to you. Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're mindful of the things of God, not the things of man. Stern stuff, this is not making mad of Jesus. This is not bleach blonde American hero Jesus. This is Peter, I hope, I think, I don't hope, I know, I know encountering the real Jesus. This is Peter encountering the real Jesus. But why does Jesus essentially call the first leader of the church demonic in this moment? What's going on here? I think Jesus' mission is so much bigger and more subversive than Peter maybe even realizes. That Jesus would become the king of the Jews through suffering and death is completely inconceivable. Peter had not signed up for this. He had not signed up for failure. And so, Jesus steps back from Peter and he pulls the crowd together and he begins to teach them the way of God, which is completely, the penny hadn't dropped at this point, it's completely alien. He begins to teach them the way of God and he says things like this, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says stuff like this, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he says this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And in these verses, there is so much theology of discipleship and glory 
and power and the upside down workings of the kingdom of God. To follow the king of the world, the Messiah, the one who made the cosmos, the one who promised to make and remake all of creation, to follow this king, he's going to have to suffer, he's going to have to die. We're going to have to follow in his example to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to lose. This is a hard teaching for the disciples to understand. This is difficult. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, there's three times that Jesus predicts his death and three times the disciples fail to understand or they act uh, inappropriately. And Jesus has to then go on and actually teach them about the very nature of discipleship three times. And so we are, I mean, so similarly we can be like these disciples that we will just have the same reaction in the face of stuff going wrong in our lives. Things don't go right the way we want them. Surely not, Jesus. We did not sign up for failure. Did not become a Christian for failure. Ultimately, this was the lesson that I, I I was going to say I learned I started to learn, I think, in 2016. And the lesson I think I began to learn, and I'm still learning, is this, that life is not a game to win. Success is not the point. Has anyone discovered this yet? Because it's super liberating. It's also really challenging as well. Because most of us have been scripted in the culture to think that life is like a game, that we challenge the game to get to the top. The purpose is to win, to get ahead, to succeed, to go for greatness. And yet, Jesus is the real Jesus in these words. Read them when you go home. Read the Gospels. The kingdom of God is not like this. All of these teachings... And Jesus' lived example, call us to win by losing, which is so utterly countercultural and paradoxical that Jesus finally had to live it himself to show us that it could be true. What does it actually mean to, to, to take up your cross? What does that look like? Well, if we were living in Roman occupied Palestine, and we had seen a man just walking down the street carrying a crossbeam. Um, it's called a parabulum, I think. Forgive me for the pronunciation for those who know better. We wouldn't have questioned anything. We would know exactly what's going on because that's totally normal. We would have recognized immediately that this man who's carrying a cross, or a, the crossbeam of the cross, which we know Jesus did later when he went to his death, we would know that that man is a condemned criminal on his way to execution because that is simply what the Romans did. They compelled those that they sentenced to death to carry their own crossbeam to the site of the crucifixion. This is the kind of dramatic imagery that Jesus uses to talk about discipleship. For if we're following Jesus, there's only one place it's going to lead to. The place of death. Why is this hopeful, Dave? Get to it quick. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. N.T. Wright says that following Jesus is more or less the gospel of Mark's definition 
of a Christian. Following Jesus is the definition of, all, of, of what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would merely mean a few minor adjustments to our ordinary life? What is more, according to Luke, we're to take up our cross every day. And if we do not, we cannot be a disciple. And here we're encountering the real Jesus. And I believe the words of Jesus here are accomplishing exactly what they need to because they cultivate in us a deep humility. I was reading these the scripture, and I just wasn't quite sure if I was even a Christian <laughs> after the end of it, to be honest. It's like, I'm going to need to have a come to Jesus moment. I need to, my, I need to respond to the altar call. I need to become a Christian all over again. We know the way of Jesus is easy, that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. He's, his words are, are trying to achieve something, trying to do something to us, trying to cultivate the kind of posture, the kind of heart, the kind of humility that what it really means to, to win in his, in his kingdom. It's hard for us, it's a challenge for us, and it's a challenge for the church in every generation to struggle. Uh, every generation struggles with this, to know just to think in the way that God thinks, not in the way that they think. It seems like madness to the world, but this is the point at which God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven will challenge and overturn all human assumptions about power and glory and all that's really important in life. And it's hard for us because the language of our culture is find yourself and self-actualization and individualism and hustle and dominate and hashtag winning. History is written by the winners. And more worryingly, our, the culture, even our churches, even our other Christians, maybe even myself, maybe some of you in this room, we, we use Jesus, an imitation Jesus, to prop up, to become chaplain to our agendas. We use Jesus to further our kingdom, whether it's war or whether it's political agenda or whether it's economic agenda. We use Jesus to get what we want, to wield power the way we want. And this kind of Jesus is a cheap imitation. It's a skewed Jesus. It's lacquered beyond the real Jesus, like those cheap imitations at the Taj. Richard Rohr has a book that talks all about this stuff called Falling Upwards, and I'd recommend it. He says much of the teaching and culture that has emerged in recent Christianity has much more to do with Greek philosophy and Roman mythologies than the gospel. He says that the ego is attracted naturally to heroic language. And so we focus much more on the heroic than we do on transformation. Zeus, instead of the Trinity, Prometheus and Ulysses, instead of the suffering servant foretold by Isaiah. Jesus' teaching was more about becoming a loving, humble, servant-like person than a hero of any normal standards. Jesus embodied a whole new meaning to the words glory, a whole new meaning to the words power. His, his radical message to, to lose in order to win, to serve, to surrender, to let go in order to gain, to, to, to die in order to, to live. It's, it, this is a radical message and it's not something we're gonna like 
tie up in a bow by the end of today and have all set. This is a journey of discipleship that we're on. So we can relax, but we should look at the real Jesus and what he's trying to teach us. And this, Jesus, this teaching of Jesus is elaborated by the Apostle Paul. In Galatians, he declares that, that he had been crucified with Christ, that he had been crucified with Christ, and that all who belong to Christ have crucified their fallen nature with all its passions and desires, putting sin to death, you might call that. And in Romans 8, Paul's clearest statement of that is, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There is a verse that draws some clear distinction around these themes of life and death, because death is the big enemy that Jesus had to deal with, and Jesus put death to death. Amen. The book of Proverbs said that there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. John Stott says that there's a kind of life that actually leads to death, and there's a kind of death that actually leads to life. The paradox of the kingdom. And so if we want to live a life of true fulfillment, we're to put to death and reject evil. And if we, want, if we, if we reject evil, then we will actually live conversely. It works both ways. And the only way to enter into the fullness of life is to put to death, to crucify in us, that which is not of Christ. And this is, a, this is a radically freeing message. This is a gracious message. Jesus is our example and the one who has put death to death and rose again into the fullness of resurrection life so that we can participate in that generative, regenerative, creative resurrection power on the earth. And if we are in Christ, and I want to proclaim this over you today, if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. You are free from the power of death and you are liberated. We are called to take up this life of discipleship, to follow this radical taking up of our crosses and letting go of the notion that we, that life is a game and it's all about winning. Instead, we enter into this new space of trust and dependence and freedom. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, the problem with the rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. Or as Jesus put it, what do you gain if you win it all but lose your own soul? In place of the script that we've been taught about life being a game that we're to win, Jesus tells us that life is a gift. And the purpose of life is to learn how to love well. Self-sacrificial love. Amen? Jesus was not the powerful or effective Messiah that the Jews hoped for or the Christians perhaps even want, even myself. Because I want Jesus to be like a hero. Like I want it all to go well. I want success. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? This is why this is so challenging to all of us, including myself. Paul says that God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the despised so that no human might boast before God. The revelation of the death and resurrection of Jesus has redefined what success and winning mean. And it is not what any of us have expected. On the cross, God himself is on the cross and is revealed as vulnerability itself. The word there is vulnera, which means woundedness. 
And this message is really hard to miss if we take a look at the real Jesus long enough. If we encounter the real Jesus long enough. But we have turned, perhaps we're guilty sometimes of, and I say that as a collective, we the church, we can so often get mistaken into just treating the, the, the cross as a transaction as opposed to the transformative effect that it might have. Brian Zand says this, and this is a hopeful message today. Jesus invites us not to march to greatness, but in the cross-carrying way of self-denial. This and this alone is the way of true discipleship, and it is also the way to abundant life. Lose your life that you might find it, that you might find it. Redeemer, during this Lenten season, I want to invite us to renew our commitment to the narrow way of Jesus. To take up our cross, to just fall on his grace, and to follow the real Jesus. On Wednesday night, and I'm coming into land now, because that's it, that's all you're getting. <laughs> on Wednesday night, we gathered here um, in 101. There was about 30 of us that gathered here for our monthly prayer and worship nights. We do that once a month. If you've never been, let me encourage you to come along, because it's, it's fun. We're learning together what it means to worship, what it means to pray in the Spirit, what it means to be rooted in our belovedness as sons and daughters of God. We're learning about that. We're learning how to enjoy God's presence, which is the greatest gift that we, we've been given, his presence. And we're, we're learning, we're, we're praying, we're hoping, we're, we're, we're asking God to renew our spirits um, that we might live this way of Jesus faithfully. The Wednesday night past was a bit different because it was Ash Wednesday. It was an evening of confession, of repentance, of uh, receiving the, the, the ashes on our foreheads. Um, to remember our mortality from dust we came and to dust we shall return. And causing us to, to, to remember our utter dependence on God, like, like we were singing this morning, like Hannah like led us so beautifully this morning in worship, like we were singing, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Our utter dependence, that was what, uh, that's how Ash Wednesday was functioning for us. And it begins and it began the season of Lent as we know that time Hands up if you're giving anything up for Lent. Hands up if anyone's begun doing that. Many of us do that. We fast from something that we love, whether it's food or chocolate or social media, whatever it might be. And over the last few years, we uh, as leaders have begun to really connect more deeply with the roots of our ancient faith and discovered the life-giving power, I think I would say, to the liturgical calendar. So just observing the calendar, to observing Ash Wednesday, to moving toward Easter. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, ordinary time, because it gives us a rhythm to our pilgrimage. It gives us a rhythm to our journey with God, and it mirrors in some way what God is doing in the world. We celebrate, a Christmas, we celebrate in, in Advent during December the incarnation of Jesus. Um, unbelievable theology wrapped up in every season of the liturgical calendar and it helps us. So on Wednesday night, back to Wednesday night, we gathered with 30 or so and we began this 46 day journey towards Lent. It's much less than that now, it's probably closer to 40. And the very heart of our story is at Easter. It's the pivotal week 
of Jesus' ministry, his passion and his death on the cross and his subversive world-changing resurrection. That is the, the center of, of our faith. But Lent, leading up to it, what is Lent? Lent, this is inviting us into a season of Lent. Lent is an invitation. That is essentially what Lent is. It's a, it is a spiritual practice that helps form us and prepare us for Easter. And the observance of Lent is ultimately like a reenactment of Jesus' suffering. What we've been talking about this morning, his, his death and his resurrection because there is life in this paradox. It is a season of renewal in our spirits, preparation for Easter. So as we fast and as we pray, as we journey with Christ in his sufferings and in his passion, as we do that, we find solidarity with Christ and we prepare the ground of our hearts for grace, for, for resurrection, for freedom to spring up in us. And like all spiritual habits and practices, the aim is for us to practice the presence of God that we've been talking about. That's the, that's the ultimate aim of it, to make room for God in our lives, to, to become a habitation of the Holy Spirit that he might work in and through us for the sake of the, of the world that we live in. So I just want to recommend, I think there's a, a slide's going to come up on the screen. I want to recommend a book to help you move toward Easter and observe Lent and maybe begin to, to, to scrape off the lacquer that we've put on Jesus. And it's this book called The Unvarnished Jesus, which has really informed this series that we're preaching, Encountering Jesus. It's essentially informed it. And I really recommend it. You can pick it up on Amazon and we might get a few on the book table for next week. Um, it's a gospel reading, two pages, a prayer, 10 minutes, you're done, but it's so beautiful and you do it every day leading up to Lent. If you'd like to get more out of Lent, if, if, I would really recommend this resource. I'd really recommend this resource. One other thing before we go, we, uh, we, we have the table and uh, Ryan, Stephanie, Dan and I, as we've been preaching our preaching series um, preparing our preaching series, we've been talking a little bit about how that preaching that the sermon is not the pinnacle of our of our gathered worship, but we we make it the pinnacle because we give it the most time. And I'm aware that of time and going on. But folks, the pinnacle of our time together as the church, the thing you can't get over a podcast the thing that you can't get on a worship album is the bread and the wine. It's the table. It's the sacraments. The high point of our worship in Redeemer Central is the table. We believe in worship. We believe in the word. We believe in the sacrament of the table. They're all sacramental things, but we believe in all three of these things, but the table is that highest point. And so for us to spend 35 minutes singing, 35 minutes on a sermon, and five minutes on the table just doesn't seem really right to us. So we're gonna try some stuff out in this season of Lent. As we go, as we gather, we're gonna give the table a bit more place as we gather, because it is the place of grace. It is the place where we get to encounter this Jesus and this invitation. So I'd love to invite Ryan and Jude up to help me. Um, you guys up for helping me? And Ryan's gonna administer the, the bread and Jude's gonna administer the wine, I think. Is that right? Um, we're not gonna go for the tables at the back this morning. 
Everyone's going to come to the front. Yes, I picked a great Sunday to do that when the tables are everywhere. But you're going to help me to make two aisles. And what I would love everyone to do is to make your way around and queue up at Ryan. And he's going to give you the bread. And then move to Jude and she will let you dip your bread in the wine. And then you can move back to your seats. Is that cool? So I would like to invite Hannah to up to, to help us, and I'd like you to invite you to stand. I'm going to lead us in some prayers. I don't know if that's it. Do you want that? Do you want that? Do you want yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. Looking for it. It's okay. Okay. We're going to try this out. We're not high church. We haven't done this before. We're figuring it out, but you can be gracious with us. So let me, let me remind you today, as we reflect on these challenging words of Jesus today, as we reflect on the call to discipleship, as we reflect on what that does to us in causing us to be so humble, I hope, and throwing ourselves on the grace of Jesus to help us by his spirit, and he will. I want to remind you today that the table here is an open table. It is one of the most important aspects of our worship. And this table, it's not our table. This is Jesus' table. He makes the guest list, as we say, which means that everyone is welcome at the table. Everyone is welcome at the table. Whether you have even used the term Christian to describe yourself or not, everyone is welcome at the table. There is only one requirement that you want to be at the table of Jesus, that you want to be with Jesus, that you want to encounter Jesus, that you want in on this story that Jesus is part of and inviting you into. So you're welcome to come and take this invitation of, to experience this love and grace at the table of Jesus and his presence here too. Find your seat at the table to help us. And it's going to take a little bit of extra time this morning, but that's okay because we're in, we're in no too much of a rush. If you need to go, you can go. But I want to just lead us in a liturgy. And it's going to come up on the screen. And the parts in yellow, I would like you to say. And the parts in white, I'm going to say. And a lot of it's on me, so you've got very little to do. But um, it's going to be fun, okay? So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Blessed are you, loving and faithful creator God. All your works, the heights and depths, time and space, echo the cosmic hymn of your praise. From the abyss of eternity, your silent words summoned existence. Oblivion withdrew and creation dawned. Eons passed as your love gave birth to untold stars and galaxies, while unseen waters gathered on the face of the deep. By the power of your imminent spirit, life emerged. In the fullness of time, when the cosmos was established, you made humankind, reflecting your own divine image. Flesh inspirited, inspirited flesh, you gave us hearts and minds, breath and voice, that we might join with all creation in the hymnless, in the ageless hymn of your glory. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
How marvelous are you, the works of your hands, O Lord. As a mother lovingly gathers her children, so you gather the people to yourself to be a light unto the nations and a sign of your covenantal love. From age to age, you promised mercy to our ancestors and filled your people with a hunger and a thirst which only you could satisfy. In the tender compassion of your love, you raised up Jesus, foretold of ancient seers, Emmanuel, God with us, in whom all hungers are fulfilled. He embodied your reign in the world, preached the good news of your love, healed the sick, comforted the poor, and empowered the oppressed to a world that dwelt in darkness. He was light to you in a humanity enslaved by sin and death. He was life through the powers of darkness which seek to destroy him with a love stronger than death. He opened wide his arms on the cross and reconciled all things to himself, surrendering his spirit to you, his Abba. Therefore, O God, we pray, open wide your arms and surrender now to us, the Holy Spirit poured out upon these gifts of bread and wine, that they may be for us the body of Christ broken for the world and the blood of Christ poured out for the many. On the night before he died, Jesus came to a table with his disciples. He took bread into his hands and giving thanks to you, O God of creation, he said the blessing, broke the bread and gave it to his beloved, saying, take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. When the supper was ended, taking also the cup of wine into his hands and again giving thanks to you, O God of redemption, he said the blessing and gave the cup to his beloved, saying, take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen. Hannah's going to lead us in some worship. Come and make your way to Ryan and then to Jude. Come to the table and make your way forward. Receive the bread, receive the wine, and let's celebrate this Christ that we've been talking about and worshiping today. Amen. <laughs>